Okay, we continue with the series on Hebrews, and today it's the last day of the year, and for some of us this has been a very tough year. Uh, sometimes you face New Year and you get to this point in 2023, and you might be thinking, wow, that was a rough year, how do I go on from here and face 2024? And uh, for some of us that's not the case. Hopefully many of you found 2023 to be a delightful year. And um, I get to this moment and I think, how much of a message can I preach that deals with the next year or this year that's just passed? And I'm one of these people who actually doesn't care so much about the individual moments, but I care about the pattern of a person's life. And so I want to encourage you that if you've found this year tough and you're looking at the next year and wondering um, how will I make it through the next one, I want to encourage you that with Jesus, you will make it not just through the next year, but through every day that God has assigned for you. Yeah. See, the goal is not just to live another year. The goal is to live every day with Jesus. Yeah. The goal is to make it to the finish line, wherever the finish line is. So we might need to live through a tough 2024 or an easy one, but there might be 10 or 20 more after that. And we want all of that time to be spent with the Lord. Yeah. We want all of our lives to be lived in a sense, in this relationship with God, and it needs to be a living relationship you have with God. And so, what I'm going to share with you this morning is going to encourage you along those lines. Let's pray, and then I'll get into the message. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, as we continue looking at the book of Hebrews, I ask that you would speak to our hearts deeply this morning and strengthen us, strengthen us to stand firm in our faith through every day that we walk with you. In Jesus' name, Amen. So last week we reached these verses in Hebrews 4. I'm going to go over them again briefly. Hebrews 4 verse 9 to 11. This is what we had read up to. Hebrews 4 verse 9 to 11 says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from His. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And that same sort of disobedience was the disobedience that Israel had when they didn't have faith, they didn't trust God, and they didn't go into Canaan when God wanted them to. The ten spies that disqualified Israel, and uh, Joshua and Caleb were the, the ones with faith, but they had to wait for that generation to, to pass away. The point that's being made is there is a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for the Hebrew Christians and for you and me. It's the same Sabbath rest that God wants us to enter into and live in. And the writer uses the example of Israel and Canaan as a picture of entering something God has for you and entering by faith. But this rest for us is not Canaan. It is the people of God resting from their works as God rested from His. God rested because the work was done, the first creation, and we can rest because Christ has done the work of salvation. And in fact, Christ is the one who is going to make the new creation. And so all of the work that has to be done, actually Jesus is responsible for. So we rest for the same reason. The work of salvation is done by Jesus. And we need to stay in that grace. We need to live in it and make our home there. So our home is in Jesus, but in the grace of God that's revealed to us in Jesus, 
And in the work of Jesus that is complete, the finished work of Calvary, we rest there. We abide there. So persevering in faith is a key element of this book. It's not a passive, like, um, let's say we're not doing anything for God. We're not serving Him. And we're not saying any of that. We're saying in terms of our security and trust and peace and joy, we rest and abide in Christ. In terms of our productivity, we labor with all the strength that He gives us. We still have work to do. We have the gospel to take to the ends of the earth. The apostolic prophetic vision of the church remains intact. We're just looking at more of the question of how you find strength and how you find stability as a Christian. Because we need to persevere not just through 2024, we need to persevere until Jesus comes back or until we go to be with Him. So I don't want us to be a people whose faith would be wobbled because of wars or rumors of wars, because of earthquakes or famines, because of unrest or trouble. I want us to be a people who know God is on the throne and will always be on the throne. And I want us to be a people who even when we would suffer some kind of adversity, we wouldn't view it as God has turned against us or God is unhappy with us. But we would be strong in our faith every day, every day of our lives. So this persevering in faith is a key theme of the book. Entering into God's presence, draw near and be with Him. This is part of what will enable us to stand firm right to the end. But what would make us confident to enter in? Well, wouldn't it be great if, as a Christian, you are not anxious, you are not uh, hopeless, you are full of faith, you're not burnt out, you're not distracted, you're not driven by the wrong motivations, you're not uh, far from God, you're not doubting, but instead you're trusting, standing firm and patiently waiting. Wouldn't it be good if that's how we could live our lives? And the writer wants the Hebrews to live like that, but some of them are turning away from God. They've become distracted by uh, their own past and the, the history of Israel, which up until then in their lives had had the temple and the sacrifices. And some of them were thinking about going back to some of those legalistic ways of approaching God. Well, the issue that will determine whether you stand well as a Christian or whether you wobble, especially if you're a young Christian and you're still growing up in understanding the gospel, the issue that will determine whether you stand or wobble and maybe fall is how it's, it's theological. It's how well do you understand salvation, how well do you understand grace, and how does that lead you to relate to God? See, the, the, the point is not just academic theology. The point is practical theology. Your theology will impact your relationship with God. Yes. Your theology is to a large extent how you see God and how you deal with Him in your life and how you live your life before Him. So we should be striving to enter the Sabbath rest. In other words, there is a, a battle to fight, a good fight of faith, which is a theological battle. It's a battle to overcome Part of our own fleshly inclinations and sinful nature and how to get ourselves to abide and stay in the grace of God and not fall into some of the other diversions. And there are two very important weapons that the writer gives us now in the passage we're about to look at. He gives us these two very important points that we need to understand in order to be in the Sabbath rest. He says, strive to enter 
the Sabbath rest. And then we read on now from Hebrews 4 verse 12. We read verse 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So here's the, the interesting thing. If you're reading through Hebrews and you get to verse 12, it doesn't automatically seem to fit in. We've been learning about the priesthood and learning about Jesus as the high priest and we're learning about uh, this point of the Sabbath rest and entering into rest and then suddenly the Word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting to the heart, getting to the heart of the matter. Well, why does the writer to the Hebrews make this sudden jump into this well-known verse, which I don't think people really have, it's well often quoted, but it's often quoted in respect to Scripture being the sword of the Spirit, which is how it's referred to by, by Paul. And, and here we see it's sharper than two, any two-edged sword, so we, we look at it as the written Word of God, the rhema. But actually in the book of Hebrews, it's not the rhema, it's not the written Word of God that's being referred to, it's the Logos. It's Jesus, the Word became flesh that John speaks of in John 1. So this is interesting already that the Word here is not just for Christians to say, I know my Bible well, it's, you know, my pocket knife and I can wield the sword of the Spirit well because I know the Word of God well. It's, a, it's, a, it's another point the writer is making. The writer is saying that Jesus himself yeah. wants to discern, wants you to see what's at your heart. Yeah. He, the Word is living and active, so it does something to you, and He comes and He acts upon you to reveal the inner motivation of your heart. He wants to get to the part that you can't even see, that separates joint and marrow, soul and spirit. Now this division of soul and spirit is really like understanding what part of this is just the soulish part, the man part of me, and which part of my life is built on the, the truth of God's Spirit. It matters because elsewhere in Scripture we read that flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. So only good only comes from God. It's only born of the Spirit of God. Good doesn't come from us, from our flesh, from our soul, from our intellect, from our, 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 our carnal being. But we are born again by the Spirit of God and in us now is the Spirit of God and a new spirit that God gave us. And we need to be living from that new spirit, not from the old flesh, the soul, the way of thinking of a normal mind. So, this is important. The Word of God can cut to the heart. We've read this before, even the preached Word of God can cut to the heart. You remember when, when um, the preaching took place in Acts chapter 2, Peter was preaching and we read it. it the people heard this, it's Acts 2 verse 37, the people heard this. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So there is a sense in which when God comes, whether by preaching, whether by you reading your Bible, or whether it's Jesus in person, He comes and He wants to get to the heart. And you cut to the heart. Those guys were cut to the heart and their response was, What must we do? 
something has to change. Well, in the case of Hebrews 4 verse 12, Jesus is wanting to get to the heart of the matter in our lives and reveal whether we are living according to the soul or the spirit, living according to the truth of the gospel or just living according to our best understanding. So that's the first thing that's very important, to allow God to come and test you and reveal the deepest part of what's going on in your heart. See, the heart of man is actually almost unfathomable. To understand or truly discern your own motives is extremely difficult. Like I've preached before, some of the, um, the Puritans, they would say, if you just looking at the depravity of man, they would say that if you come and you help an old lady to cross the road, perhaps it's not true virtue. Perhaps it's an act of pride on your part. Perhaps you helped the old lady across the road because you wanted people to see you doing a good deed. Perhaps you cared that you define yourself as a good person out of your own pride and you helped the old lady across the road because you're actually prideful and you want to believe you're a good person. Yeah. It's all about you. Or it could have been prompted by the Spirit of God and you were just an obedient, humble servant who did a good deed. That's more like true virtue. Is I am nothing. I just do what Jesus asks me to do. But how do you know what was going on inside of you when you did a good deed? You put money in the offering basket today. You could have put the money in the basket because you think by doing that, God will be more pleased with you, or you could have done it because you truly love God and want to worship Him. Two different motivations. But you can't even see easily to the heart of your heart, if I can use that expression, to the depths of your soul. And so the Spirit of God comes and searches us, Jesus comes and probes us, and He says, I want to separate, I want to show up what is soul and what is spirit. So. We need to know what's driving us. We need to know if we are in the Sabbath rest or if we're still driven by other motivations. Yes. You see, on the, we, we tend to a kind of drivenness. We slide back into legalism or something that's maybe just more of a moralism that's out of step with the goodness of God and the truth about our own weaknesses. Two things, the goodness of God and our own weakness. And when you start to slip into a moralism or a Christian, a Christian understanding that's built around your own works, you're not in the Sabbath rest now. You haven't ceased your own works. You're starting to think that the things that I'm doing are going to make my life intrinsically better when you don't realize that you can't produce good without Christ. Yeah. Yeah, so that's on the one hand, we tend to drivenness when we want to please God. And it's not wrong to want to please God, but where you live must be in the Sabbath rest. And so the things you do to please God are just supposed to be given freely, not given out of a sense of, I must do this, otherwise God won't be pleased with me. On the other hand, we also tend to a laziness or a complacency, or even worse than a lukewarm passivity, we could be pursuing the wrong things. We could be chasing after happiness in all kinds of wrong places. And the parable of the two sons really illustrates this very well. Now I want you to stick with me for a moment as I elaborate. 
Well, I'd like you to stick with me right to the end of my message. <laughs> the parable of the two sons, we know it well if we're Christians. We've heard about the story of the prodigal son. That's how I first learned about the two sons. I learned it as the prodigal son story. And I was always focused on this younger brother, the younger son, who takes his inheritance early and goes out and parties hard. You know, he wine, women, everything that could give him pleasure in the world, he's going for it. He's out there to see what the world can offer him. And, uh, and then he finds it empty and he comes to the point where he's eating with the pigs and he says, even the servants in my father's household do better than this. I'm going to head back to my father's household and see if he would give me a job as a servant. You know the story, the father meets him, puts a robe on him, kills the fatted calf, puts a ring on his finger, takes him inside and says, my son, you've come home. It's a beautiful story. And of course, that when I was a younger Christian, that was the part of the story that, uh, well, it's what I was interested in. And it actually shows up the very problem with being a good Christian. Just the fact that I was more interested in the younger brother shows the danger of me wanting to figure out how to be morally better. Yes. See, I had to figure out what did that younger guy do wrong and then I have to stop doing that. He saw women, so I won't talk to women. He drank wine, so I won't drink wine. And I'm going to make my life better and better so that I'm not the younger brother. Actually, my concern was not to be him, and in the process, what I didn't realize was I became the older brother. In the process, I became the older brother. And I only later in life started to restudy those, that parable and understand that the older brother lesson could be far more applicable to a believer. Because most of us as Christians are not pursuing wine and woman. But many of us are trying to do everything right, like the older brother. And so I became the older brother. But one thing that's fascinating when you get to the end of that story is, you'll notice that the older brother is actually worse off. He's the one that never receives grace. He lives in his drivenness to do right by his dad. And he's upset with the fact that he's not getting the credit he expected. He didn't get the result he expected from being the better son. And in fact, he never comes inside in the story. He's always out there, out working outside there, trying to prove himself to his father. A bit like Martha, who was so busy doing the things that needed to be done. And Jesus said of Mary, when Martha was angry because Mary was doing nothing, Jesus says, she's done the better thing. Very counterintuitive if you want to find your identity in the stuff you do. Surely Martha was not a bad person. No, she wasn't. Surely the things she did were good. Yes. But there was a root issue in the older brother that we're looking at here, the parable of the two sons. And the older brother's root issue was he was trying to earn what he already had. He already had his father's love. And his father says to him by the end of the parable, he says, everything I have has always been yours. His dad's like, why are you trying to earn it? And yet we do this with God. And I wonder, you think we don't. But it's devastating when we get it wrong in the long term. 
See, the older brother never went inside. He never sat down and enjoyed a meal at the table. He didn't approach with confidence. See, we're going to get to a scripture that says we should boldly approach the throne of God with confidence. He never did that with his dad. He never boldly went and took his inheritance as if it belonged to him. He was always working for his dad, but never enjoying the inheritance of a true son. So to, to help you understand that this isn't a theory in Christianity, it's dangerous. Your understanding of salvation is so critical. Your understanding of grace is so important to how you stand firm in your faith long term. That I'm going to use an extreme example of Joshua Harris. This guy, when I was a young, a, a, a younger man, I just, just got married, thank the Lord. And a book came on the scene called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And this book took the evangelical world by storm. It was written by a young guy about young people doing Christian stuff and like how we court. That means how you find a spouse. And what happened was the Christians just were so enamored with this book because here was a young guy who in his fervor for God had written how passionately he was willing to walk away from the ways of the world and not even date because it was too dangerous that you might kiss a girl. What? It, so anyway, that's the story. He wrote a book. Millions of people read it. I'm not exaggerating. And millions of people try to live their lives by it. Young people said, I'm going to do this thing. This thing is going to work for me. This is how I'm going to please God. This is how I'm going to live a holy life. And the end result was not what they anticipated. Because the separation of soul and spirit hadn't happened yet. Jesus hadn't gone to the depths of what's motivating Josh to write his book. And what's motivating all these Christians to follow it with such fervor. And so now, years later, Joshua Harris wrote a statement. Because a tree is known by its fruit. And takes time for the fruit to appear. So we're talking since 1997 when the book was first published. So we're talking 30 years of, of history. Not quite, but 20 years of history. For, he writes this. For many years, people have asked whether I still agree with my book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. In addition to this question, some readers have told me the book harmed them. While attending grad school between 2015 and 2018, I began a process of re-evaluating the book. This included inviting people to share their stories with me on my website, personal phone calls with readers, an in-depth study of issues surrounding my book overseen by one of my graduate school professors, and finally creating a documentary film called I Survived I Kissed Dating Goodbye that captured the conversation with people who were reshaping my thinking. I'm very sad as I read this because my heart breaks for this guy and the people that didn't see what was coming. For me, it was important for this process of re-evaluation to engage with other people and other voices. It was drawn out because I did not want to be superficial in my response, and I made it public because I think my re-evaluation needed to be commensurate to the public reach of my book. 
Needless to say, my thinking has changed significantly in the past 20 years. I no longer agree with its central idea that dating should be avoided. I now think dating can be a healthy part of a person developing relationally and learning the qualities that matter most in a partner. In an effort to set a high standard, the book emphasized practices, not dating, not kissing before marriage, and concepts, giving your heart away, that are not in the Bible. Did you hear that? In order, in an effort to set a high standard, the book emphasized practices and concepts that are not in the Bible. In trying to warn people of the potential pitfalls of dating, it instilled fear in many readers, fear of making mistakes or having their heart broken. Now, if you're not willing to have your heart broken, you should never love. That's just me ad-libbing quickly. Seriously, love equals vulnerability. You, I cannot even love the woman I've been married for, to, to, for 27 years tomorrow unless I'm vulnerable tomorrow and she can reject me tomorrow. There will never not be vulnerability in love. But this book tried to propose that if you followed a set of high standards, you could have something. It was not a promise from God. So in trying to warn people of the potential pitfalls of dating, it instilled fear in many readers of fear of making mistakes or having their heart broken. The book also gave some, of, some the impression that a certain methodology of relationships would deliver a happy ever after ending, a great marriage, a great sex life, even though this is not promised by Scripture. Now the church lapped that up. The church promoted it. I'm not blaming Joshua Harris. I'm saying evangelical Christians and Christians far and wide look for ways of doing life better. And you could be on a non-biblical foundation. You could be simply trying to create a new moral framework that makes you superior to the others. And it's dangerous. What happened is tragic, actually. In the, in the, in the unpacking of this, Joshua Harris, who wrote the book, has subsequently even walked away from the faith. He's become fully into promoting, you know, what we would call the inclusivity of all the letters of the alphabet. And he himself, that has his marriage dissolved or he separated or divorced. I don't know all the details. I'm not here to gossip or bring scandal. But it is tragic that somewhere in the foundation of his faith, his Christianity, his theology, his understanding of grace, was not sufficiently developed for him to be able to write and then deal with the consequences of that position that he had, that Jesus revealed. The untenable position of perhaps being just 10% too religiously fervent, too zealous for his own righteousness. That's all. All he wanted to be was good. It's that simple. See, but Building a purity culture, all we want to be is good. But what is the foundation of it? Is it on your goodness or is it on the goodness of Christ that you live? Yeah. Is there hope in how you do your life, the works you do for Jesus, or is your hope in Jesus alone? Yeah. This is the danger when it comes to your understanding of theology and grace and your relationship with God. It all falls apart in the end if it's not built on Jesus. Yes. See, I'm going to read a, 
a quote from a more mature Christian. And this quote comes from a guy I admire. His name is Paul. And he writes in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 4. This is from 1 Corinthians 4 verse 4. Paul writes, My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. This is, the, we can put the, the ESV up, I don't mind, it's, it, it writes, I'm not aware of anything against myself. So when I look at myself, I know I'm, a, I'm doing what I can right. My conscience is clear, is how the NIV translates that. So Paul is standing in a position where he is not harboring any um, hidden sin that he's aware of. He's not stuck in, he's not addicted to porn and denying it. He's not having an affair and denying it. He's not stealing from his business and denying it. He's got no hidden sin that he's aware of. He's trying to please God. He says, I'm not aware of anything against myself. Like, my conscience is clear. But then he says this profound statement. But that does not make me innocent. Yeah. So, believer, your whole life, that's the uncertainty you can have. Your conscience is clear. You're the best Christian you know. But you better add to that. That doesn't declare you innocent. That doesn't mean you're innocent. It just means you're probably not aware of all your sin. So, it is the Lord who judges me, he says. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Don't try to receive your praise from God in this life for your, from your performance in this life. Don't try to judge in advance. You don't even know what's going on. He said just before this, he says, I don't care what man judges me. I don't even judge myself. He's like this theologically accurate understanding of the nature of man. He's saying, I can't be sure that I'm without sin. Only God knows that. So I'm going to live for God, but I know what's, what ultimately keeps me is not me, but Jesus. So he says, my conscience is clean, but it doesn't mean I'm without sin. So that's my life and your life. You know what? You're looking at me. I think I'm doing all right. Maybe I'm not. I don't know. I need Jesus. Yeah. I only need Jesus. I need only Jesus. And yes, I'm going to put in all my effort to be holy, but it counts for nothing because I don't even know if I made myself holy or not. Jesus counts for everything because I know He washed away my sin. So that's the first part of this Hebrews passage is that the Word is sharper than a two-edged sword. In Jesus, the Logos comes to separate soul and spirit inside of us. Jesus probes and reveals the difference between when we're doing things out of the soul, out of the spirit, even if it takes 20 years. But that's only the first thing the writer says. Then as we read on, we get to Hebrews 4 verse 14 and 15. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. In other words, my faith is unshakable because it's Jesus who is my great high priest. So my hope is going to be Jesus. My stability is going to come from Jesus. And that means if tomorrow I have a worse day than average and I accidentally kick the dog on purpose, I still hope in Jesus. 
I'm not advocating kicking dogs. I mean, I was actually having a, a, a philosophical discussion with Craig right before this meeting, and I said, do you think it's wrong to step on an ant? I actually have a bit of a personal moral problem because I don't think it's right to step on an ant intentionally. I think it's like taking life is something you shouldn't do. But I know we can't avoid stepping on ants accidentally. And I know many ants are just going to be casualties of shoes. Like a casualty of war. It's like, wasn't even in that fight and there goes that ant, it's dead. I didn't know. Thousands of ants that I've killed, I didn't know. But the one that I know and I step on, is it? I don't know why I'm telling you that story. <laughs> Kicking the dog, having a bad day. The point is, when, when you know why you're saved, you, 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 you're less harsh on others, you're less harsh on yourself, you stay in the grace of God. You don't set a higher standard for people to live up to. Yes. Don't set a higher standard. Joshua Harris tried to set a higher dating standard. It's a different motivation. Why did I not sleep with my girlfriend. It wasn't Joshua Harris's book, it was the fear of God between me and the Holy Spirit and it had nothing to do with you or my pastor. In other words, I declare my confession that I'm a believer. I hold fast to my confession that I am a son of God, not divine, I just mean adopted. I belong to Him. I live in his family, I eat at his table, and as I'm trying to resist the urge to feel my girlfriend's body, I won't use all the anatomical terms, my conscience speaks up and says, this is not pleasing to God, you shouldn't do this. And I didn't ever read I Kiss Dating Goodbye. I didn't ever need that higher standard. I needed to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit saying stop. And then out of the love of God, my love for God, I said to my flesh, no, and I stopped. And even if I hadn't, the world wouldn't come to an end and my salvation would not cease. Yeah. Even if I had failed, even if I had fallen, I would have fallen into the grace of God. I would have fallen into his mercy. I would have turned back to him and said, Jesus, I'm sorry, I blew it. Do you know what keeps you away from God for so long when, you're a, when you don't understand the gospel? You think that you have to stay feeling guilty forever. Yes. But when you sin, we have access to forgiveness in Christ every time. So why not keep a clean conscience and a short set of accounts and repent rapidly? But if you're living under a legalistic kind of Christianity, you feel so disqualified for so long that you can't even go back to God for weeks after you sin. Forget it. Go back to Him today. Just fall upon His mercy. Just find grace and get back in it because it's always there for you. Because we have a high priest. So this is what the writer understands. He says, Jesus is going to probe your heart. Jesus is going to find stuff in there. But since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. He's not only your judge, he's your defender. Yes. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. In other words, he is the standard above my life. 
He is the one who carried the standard for me and presented it before God as my high priest. He is the one who's demonstrated perfection on my behalf and presented himself in my place to the Father. He is the one that has propitiated God's wrath for me. And so I stand in his grace. And so the writer gets to this magnificent verse with which we close today. Hebrews 4 verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. It's not a throne of judgment for you and for me. That we may receive mercy. How? As a free gift of God's grace. You receive it by faith. You say, God, I need your mercy. God says you have it. That is the gospel. That's why it's good news. And that's how you enter the Sabbath rest and live there forever. Because though I have weaknesses, I have a high priest who sympathizes with me. He is for me, not against me. He stands at the right hand of God and every time I fail, He says, but I died for Him. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. When is that time? 2024 may be a tough year. Actually, that time for me, that time of need is every day, the rest of my life. 2025, 2026, until Jesus comes back, I'm going to be going with confidence to the throne of grace. I will never not have that confidence because that confidence is not in me, it's in Christ. You understand this? I'm laboring it. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting you to understand the gospel is this good so that when we sin, we have an advocate, a defender, the very one who would judge us is the one who died for us. He loves us. He shed His blood for us. He will never leave you, never forsake you, never reject you, never condemn you for your sin. But what will keep you out of the Sabbath rest? A guilty conscience. So repent. Humble yourself. Fall upon God's grace. Leave your sins behind. Go and sin no more. Jesus did that with people. He never took them on a big mission of restoration and groveling. It's like you were caught in adultery. Stop it. I won't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Wow. This is the gospel. We don't have to set a higher standard. We're going to fail at any standard we set. But we have to aim at pleasing Jesus, loving Him, enjoying Him, staying in His goodness and His grace, living there. Make that your home. Enter the Sabbath rest. Could the band come up? It's time for us to worship our great God.